You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. I'm pleased to introduce today's speaker, Artemy Kalinovsky. Kalinovsky is professor of Russian, Soviet, and post-Soviet studies at Temple University and the principal investigator of the ERC-funded project, Building a Better Tomorrow, Development, Knowledge, and Practice in Central Asia and Beyond hosted at the University of Amsterdam. He is the author of Laboratory of Socialist Development, Cold War Politics and Decolonization in Soviet Tajikistan, published in 2018 by Cornell University Press, which won the Ed A. Hewitt and Davis Center Prizes from the Association for Slavic, East European and Eurasian Studies. Kalinovsky is also the author of A Long Goodbye, the Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan, published by Harvard University Press in 2011. He has co-edited a number of volumes on Soviet and Cold War history, including Alternative Globalizations, Eastern Europe, and the Post-Colonial World, 2020 from Indiana University Press with James Mark and Steffi Marung, and The End of the Cold War and the Third World, 2020 from Rutledge with Sergei Radchenko. Okay, thank you, Artemi. I'm going to turn the floor over to you now. All right, well, uh, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to talk today. Um, uh, you're all very fortunate to have this kind of program uh, during your graduate school training, um, something I always wished I had, but uh, did my training in the UK, and this was one of the downsides, is, is not having access to this kind of intensive um, language training. Um, so one of the questions I was asked is, what advice would you give to the graduate students? Uh, and you're already following the most important advice, which is do intensive language training. So good for you. Um, I thought that um, since this book already came out a few years ago, and uh, you're grad students, and you're getting ready for your own research, um, you may have already read this book. But more importantly, I think maybe you're less interested in what's about, you know, with what's in the book than um, with what uh, it took to write the book, right? So how we went about the research, the methodology and so forth. So um, what I will try to do in uh, the next uh, 40 minutes or so, maybe even a little less, I will talk a little bit about what's in the book. Um, uh, for those of you who haven't read it, uh, I know Nick has. Um, but, um, but I'll try to talk even more uh, about uh, how I went about writing it and also about the kind of um, thoughts I've had about the process and, and methodologies and so forth uh, since the book's come out and since I've engaged with, with um, some of the readers. I say in the book that I, you know, I think I'm trying to answer some of the big questions about um, the late 20th century, um, such as could the benefits of industrial modernity become widely available? Um, what political and economic system offered the best path for that kind of modernity, um, if it was possible to overcome the legacies of World War and Stalinism, uh, how best to right the wrongs of European imperialism, including economic inequality and cultural domination, um, whether former colonies and colonizers uh, could be allies in these struggles, and if so, on what terms, and whether we could achieve any of this 
uh, without harming the Earth's natural environment or if the path to prosperity for humans led to the destruction of the planet. And these are questions that are, of course, at the heart of uh, the history of development aid and the historiography of development uh, that's, de that's uh, taken shape over the last two decades. Um, but they're also central to the history of socialism uh, and capitalism. And so, you know, work, and I guess all of you will be working at a place that captures these modern political, uh, economic, and environmental dramas, um, which is Soviet and post-Soviet uh, Central Asia. Um, if you had been uh, studying the region, or if you've been studying, let's say, Soviet history in the 1990s, uh, or even Russian history in the 1990s, uh, Central Asia would have seemed quite remote from what was going on in the field and in the literature. Um, and certainly if you study um, Cold War history, if you study environmental history, more generally Central Asia often seems very remote. And yet I would argue that it's very central and uh, looking at it illuminates the history of Soviet development as well as other 20th century efforts to transform economies and societies um, in the post-colonial world. Um, now, I should say I didn't um, envision doing this kind of study when I first uh, started working on this uh, book. Um, so, you know, if you feel like you're writing your dissertation prospectus and you're locked into a research program for the next decade, um, you know, there are plenty of opportunities to change your mind, although I don't recommend doing that too often during your PhD. But um, the reason I ended up working on this is, you know, it, during my during my PhD, when I was working on the Soviet war in Afghanistan, um, two kind of things were happening. I mean, one, I was getting a lot of questions about Central Asia, which I hadn't thought about very much um, because I was looking at things from Moscow's perspective and I was looking at Soviet decision-making and Soviet diplomacy and, and so on. And I knew looking from Moscow that actually, you know, Soviet leaders, Soviet uh, generals and diplomats weren't too concerned about Soviet Central Asia. They weren't, you know, those are concerns that um, develop later, uh, you know, whether there was going to be some kind of blowback or boomerang effect or uh, whether Central Asian soldiers were disloyal. That was just not something that um, Soviet leaders uh, were worried about. Um, quite the opposite, they were actually relying on Central Asians to a large extent, uh, not just as soldiers, but as advisors and intermediaries and especially translators. Um, but nevertheless, I wanted to understand a bit more about what the war meant for Central Asia and uh, why it didn't have a larger effect and how people experienced the war uh, and so on. So that was one kind of set of questions that I became interested in. But the other one was that I realized kind of halfway through my dissertation research that the war was, of course, not just about fighting, but actually very much about um, what, you know, we would call more broadly um, kind of development through counter or counterinsurgency through development. That is very crucial to how the Soviets imagined they would win the war was the idea that they could provide kind of governance and uh, economic benefits and so forth that would make the government in Kabul, which was allied with the Soviets, legitimate to the population. Uh, and then the population would stop uh, fighting the Soviet Union and its allies. And those were the two questions that um, originally brought me to uh, Central Asia. And I started out uh, in Tajikistan 10 years ago, 
this week, actually, 10 years ago this week, uh, I started research on this. I mean, I started research on the book before, but I, I landed in uh, Tajikistan with uh, a grant from IREX, uh, planning to spend uh, the summer uh, a month and a half there, and then a month and a half in, in Uzbekistan. Um, and I started trying to, and I tell this story in the introduction, I was trying to get into the Communist Party archives and ended up talking to the gentleman who had joined the party after 1991. And I thought this was a very strange uh, thing to do because of course the Communist Party in Tajikistan was still an active party at that point, but it, there were no perks associated with it. It clearly wasn't going to drive the course of history anymore. So both ideologically and, and in terms of personal interest, it seemed a rather strange choice. Um, but his take was, he said, you know, look, our young people go to America today and they say they have communism there. And I say to them, but at what cost? So communism to him meant, uh, you know, it meant the widespread electricity, the cars, the uh, paved roads everywhere, the big buildings. It was, in other words, a kind of modernity. Um, but, uh, you know, he was saying, of course, under capitalism, that modernity is achieved at uh, enormous cost, I guess, in terms of inequality and so forth. Right, and that the Soviet Union was doing it the right way, and so he was joining the party to kind of honor that uh, legacy and maybe um, try to retain some of it um, in the present. Here's the old Communist Party headquarters, uh, recently demolished, by the way. Um, <clears throat> so, the historiography that I was getting into, uh, or that I'd gotten into while working on my dissertation, was this emerging historiography of U.S. Cold War modernization, and then more broadly, um, uh, more broadly, the history uh, of development. Right, and so, you know, some historians would take this back to the Enlightenment, the idea that you could use science and technology to improve the human condition. Other historians focused on uh, international organizations uh, like the World Bank and foundations. Um, some, you know, worked on physical infrastructure, roads, rails, and ports, and, and others uh, worked on uh, food and, and uh, almost more humanitarian concerns. Um, and I found this literature uh, very inspiring, but it had uh, two frustrations with it. One was which it has completely left out the Soviet story, right? The Soviet Union was there as the competitor, which um, kind of forced or encouraged the United States to undertake uh, development uh, and development aid especially, but it wasn't really there as an actor, it didn't really offer an alternative. And the other one was that this, most of this historiography um, was very much kind of, it was either very much political history that it was about the decisions that went into, um, that went into um, offering aid, um, or it was a kind of intellectual history, right, about um, the people who were uh, usually sitting in MIT or uh, Harvard somewhere, um, and were coming up with ideas about what development should be, what development modernization should be. But they told the story about, you know, 1950s being a very optimistic period, and the United States coming out of the Second World War with all of this wealth, and the experience of having defeated uh, the depression before that uh, and going out through the world and, and trying to um, make the world more like the United States. And then by the 1960s, um, there's this increasing dissatisfaction with what's happening. Um, uh, by the late 1960s, the kind of development consensus of the 1950s is falling apart. There's a search for 
uh, new method. Eventually, in the 1980s, we get uh, kind of neoliberalism and the Washington Consensus, which comes apart, um, uh, which which comes together in part because there is a critique from the left, which is saying this is all about um, this is all about kind of finding new people and new places to exploit. Um, and not actually helping anybody or not helping the most vulnerable and a critique from the right that says this is all just a waste of money um, and what countries need is uh, kind of free trade and so forth. It destroys the early injustice, creating new ones. But if we look at the story of Soviet development in Central Asia, I would argue um, we see a kind of similar arc. Um, so the Central Asia comes out of the Stalin era cotton producer with very limited industrial uh, capacity. Um, but in the 1950s, against the background of, of decolonization, um, local and Moscow-based planners argued that the region is right for industrialization. They point to hydropower potential uh, and labor resources, especially when they um, build these projections on the idea that agricultural work could be mechanized. So you wouldn't have to get rid of cotton. You just uh, make it uh, mechanized or you make the cotton uh, harvesting mechanized. Um, and you'd have a stream of labor, uh, male and female, that would go into these new industries. And that in turn would facilitate the spread of welfare and education, lift standards of living, um, and make Central Asians proper Soviet citizens and socialist subjects. But then by the 70s, these assumptions are increasingly being questioned, both within Moscow and the region, in part because Central Asians seem reluctant to join the industries, cotton is still being harvested using manual labor. Um, and cotton, the cotton economy and industrialization are both ruining the environment. Um, so by the 1980s, you have critics who are saying that Soviet economic policy was meant to benefit only Moscow and was just another form of colonial exploitation. So just pacing, <clears throat> placing these two narratives side by side already suggests, uh, to me at least, that we can't really make sense of the history of development until we look at the Soviet case. Um, the Soviet Union never used the term development, but um, quite in the same way that it's used uh, in English, but nevertheless, I would argue that it was very crucial to uh, socialist ideology and, and, and the way history was understood, right? Societies move through stages, capitalist, feudal capitalist to socialist, um, and that transformation involved not just economic change, but total transformation of social relations and the creation of new men and women. Um, and one of the things that I take up is the kind of the idea of culturedness, um, which, you know, overlaps with European ideas of European middle class modernity and includes modes of dress, behavior, uh, use of free time, and so on. Um, another theme that I take up in the book is the construction of the welfare state, right? So the, provi the provision of health and education uh, to citizens which I argue is also part of the creation of the socialist subject. One who trusted in institutions and modern forms of knowledge, it was committed to self-improvement and Soviet conceptions of equality um, and willing to sacrifice for the collective. Um, <clears throat> one of the kind of debates about Central Asia that I try to um, engage here is this debate about you know, the Soviet Union's uh, coloniality, whether it was an empire and if kind of empire it was and so forth, right? I think this has obviously been a debate that's gone on for a long time. And I think most of us would agree that the Soviet Union was a kind of empire, right? That uh, Soviet claims to the contrary, it hadn't, uh, uh, it hadn't shed, um, you know, all of the uh, kind of inequalities of power um, and, um, 
so on that uh, that existed in the Russian Empire. Moreover, it was creating uh, uh, some of its own. At the same time, I think we have to take the Soviet claim of anti-colonialism, uh, anti-imperialism very seriously. I think this is a claim that um, Soviet leaders actually took seriously in their own way. And I think it was a claim that people responded to. And so one of the things that I try to do in the book um, is taking that seriously to explore the kind of um, uh, contradictions that emerge, the kind of productive contradictions that emerge, right? How do people uh, react when they uh, take these uh, claims seriously, right? So uh, especially uh, from the 1950s onwards when the Soviet Union positioned Central Asia as being a kind of frontline in demonstrating um, the Soviet commitment to anti-imperialism and starts bringing in um, people from all over the decolonizing world, um, as well as force revolutionaries like Fidel Castro <clears throat> to kind of demonstrate that the Soviet Union really has achieved the form of decolonization internally um, and wants to encourage Central Asians to go out as ambassadors, specialists, as advisors, and so on. Um, what does it mean for them to be mobilized to assist in the struggle? Um, what does it mean for peasants uh, and workers who are frequently reminded that they're at the forefront of a global struggle for equality, progress, and justice? Um, so I try to do this at um, three different uh, levels or maybe scales would have been uh, a better word. One is that I do look at kind of Soviet debates uh, and struggles over development economic relations in terms of all union and in terms of um, international uh, politics. And I try to understand in the context of the Cold War um, and um, post-colonial uh, development schemes. One of the things I argue is that many of the ideas the Soviets take up are very similar to um, what is being uh, discussed and promoted in the United States uh, and elsewhere, right? The debates about industrialization, urbanization, demography, all have parallels in the West and what was then called the third world. I also argue that the image that the USSR presents of itself um, plays a role in, in what actually goes on, right? And I, I in a way, it was very inspired by um, Michael David Fox's kind of argument that, um, you know, the Potemkin village in the way we usually understand it didn't exist, right? In the sense that it wasn't just a facade, right? Rather, it was an actual village that was kind of spruced up and meant to inspire, not meant not to just kind of convince the touring empress that things were good, but actually to inspire the peasants uh, to do better. And I kind of see this pattern in, in the way the Soviet Union uh, does propaganda where um, it's often um, kind of saying, you know, this is the way things are, and then it's scrambling behind the scenes to move things closer to that uh, reality. Um, there's an example that I didn't include in the book, but I've written about elsewhere, where um, they are they want to create Central Asian opera in the 1930s. This is big wave of creating national operas, um, and they're going to have a big presentation of it at a cultural festival in Moscow in 1940 with war going on in Europe. But in the documentation, they're scrambling to finish the opera theater in Dushanbe and Stalinabad, as it was then called, right before they put on the show in Moscow. 
right? As if somebody would go and check. But for them, right, there's this kind of idea that, okay, it has to actually be there before we can go and claim that this is the case. Um, and I, so I see, I don't talk about that particular example in the book, but I see a similar kind of thing happening with, um, you know, things like internationalism, people's friendship, of course, the reality never matches up to the claim. And yet making the claim, I think, forces the Soviet Union um, to try to make the, uh, take these things more seriously. So I look also then at the knowledge producing elites, right? So um, the economists, uh, the architects, the engineers, the planners, um, uh, the kind of development anthropologists, uh, anthropologists of development, uh, Tanya Lee calls people like this trustees, right? The people who kind of say, okay, you know, I'm in a position uh, now to help define what is good for society, right? And those people could be sort of external or they could be internal. I'm particularly interested in, in those so-called internal ones, that is people from uh, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan who um, take advantage of Soviet uh, uh, mobility, um, but then also at the same time, um, try to define what they think uh, development should be and, and, and try to mobilize resources for that. Um, by the 1980s, I argue many of them have become the solution um, and, and believed that the Soviet Union had done too little to improve the region's economic conditions and preserve its cultural heritage. Um, and their critiques of the USSR during the late 80s often drew uh, on their own experiences of interacting with the post-colonial world. Um, so the person uh, that you see there, um, you see the two gentlemen, um, they were both economists who traveled on a number of occasions to India. Uh, and met with Indian economists who were studying questions of development and poverty. Um, and the, the person kind of uh, all the way on the left is Ajumam uh, Adumarov. He's still an active uh, economist uh, in Tajikistan. Um, and he publishes these critiques in the late 1980s where he explicitly kind of compares what happened in Central Asia to a kind of um, colonial domination. Um, so I, you know, some of these individuals came to see their societies in the colonized group and they borrowed the language of resistance that actually Moscow had encouraged them to use against Western colonial powers. Um, and then I try in my work also to look at the everyday experiences of people who were supposed to be the main beneficiaries of these uh, projects. And I try to complicate notions of resistance and accommodation. Um, I think peasants, workers, and, and urban elites uh, certainly resisted many policies and initiatives. Um, I talk in the book about uh, resettled peasants who abandoned collective farms and returned to mountain villages. Um, I talk about the ways that um, people try to limit the reach of the welfare state, uh, especially into family lives, um, and of course, resistance to certain kind of cultural practices. Um, but I also see um, the way that people engage, the way that people try to take advantage of um, some of these um, uh, opportunities that are presented by, by the changes that, that are brought in in this period. Um, and the way people actually internalize uh, some of the kind of narratives and ways of talking about the self and then the effect that has um, going forward. And I argue that what makes all of this possible is um, the relative ideological flexibility of the post-Stalin uh, years. It makes it possible to de-emphasize some aspects of Soviet ideology, um, such as atheism uh, in everyday life, and allows people um, to kind of adapt Soviet socialism um, in, in, in a particular way. Um, but of course, uh, you know, not everybody came Soviet. Many people remain marginalized or were marginalized by this process. Um, but I would argue that looking at the people who became self-consciously part of the system um, actually reveals not only what it took to become Soviet, but how the system had to change 
to accommodate um, that kind of diversity. These are, by the way, people who appear in the book and people who I uh, interviewed. This is Mukhabar Sharipov, a very storied laborer at uh, Nurek, uh, somebody who rose from uh, kind of uh, unskilled laborer to brigade leader uh, at this uh, giant dam where I did a lot of my research. And um, this is one of the first female crane operators um, who I also um, interviewed uh, there. Um, we're getting on time, so I want to I want to skip some of the um, content and actually um, start talking a bit more about methodology, and I can answer questions about the content uh, if that's what's um, that's what's more interesting. Um, so I said that I wanted to get beyond um, what I saw as some of the uh, frustrating, let's say, shortcomings of development historiography as it existed at that point, and I wanted to understand um, how. Uh, different people experienced these things and not just how uh, planners in Moscow wrote about development and things like that. Um, and so the way I went about doing this is, I mean, I did a lot of, a lot of archival research uh, for this project, but I also tried to, um, I also tried to uh, borrow from, um, you know, different kinds of social history and uh, cultural history and debates about, uh, on subjectivity that had been going on more like say late 90s and 2000s um, and uh, look for kind of narratives and uh, collect memoirs and also do a lot of oral history. Um, so I'd done a lot of, I'd done quite a few interviews for my first book, but I, for that book, I was primarily interviewing um, diplomats, uh, generals, uh, a few spies who were willing to talk to me. Um, and these were, those were for the most part very, you know, interviews focused around getting facts and, and, and getting um, kind of a version of a story that I would find elsewhere, right? And usually I would interview people who had 30 uh, minutes to give me, maybe an hour, hour and a half. I was really lucky. Um, we didn't get too much into their life trajectories. We talked about, okay, what happened at a particular meeting? Why did it happen that way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, here I was doing something uh, very different. Uh, I had a few of those kind of interviews, but very, very little. I interviewed probably, you know, formal interviews, I probably had 60 or 70, and I had a lot of other conversations. Um, and I tried to just do kind of very open-ended, um, you could say semi-structured um, oral histories where I, I would I would have some things that I would want to know. For example, when I was interviewing uh, an economist, I would usually go in knowing a lot about their work already, but I also want to know the things about their lives that um, hadn't been recorded anywhere and how they came to be. Um, who they were and and um, and so on and so forth. Um, and then I went and spent um, several months um, doing interviews with some of these uh, workers, like the people uh, you see here. Right? And this involved going up uh, to New York from Dushanbe, usually spending half a day or a day there, um, interviewing one or two people, going back, and getting more contacts, and so on, going kind of three times a week. And I partnered with a, an anthropologist, Marika Bokhova-Divinova. Um, she was working on labor um, and was interested in kind of the prehistory of that in the Soviet period. And she was interested in how a historian would work. I was interested in how an anthropologist would work. Um, and so let me skip down uh, to uh, the, well, here, I mean, a very schematic kind of idea about how I um, see these kind of relationships and, and, and uh, and, and the methods, but here we are kind of interviewing 
um, somebody together. So uh, you can see a significantly younger version of me there uh, in the middle, uh, pre-kids and pre-sleepless nights. Um, and then the third woman from the right was the person who we'd originally come to interview. And she was also one of the first women to um, work on the construction site, particularly in, a, in kind of skilled, uh, skilled labor. Um, one of the kind of interesting things about doing things this way is, of course, we were greeted not just by her, but um, by her and several of her sisters and then uh, assorted uh, nieces and, and, and grandkids who were there. Um, and uh, talking to her, and this was one of the longer kind of uh, interviews that we recorded, but one of the interesting things that came out in talking to her was, okay, so, um, you know, she joined... Uh, she worked uh, on this dam for many years, but at the same time, um, she also had quite a few kids. I don't remember how many anymore. So how did she balance these things, right? So how does she was not there? You know, there was one uh, famous story of a woman who joined the dam who had to break with her parents, right? And then, you know, something that was reported in the papers at the time because they wanted to marry somebody. She didn't want to marry that person. Instead, the party authorities stepped in and, and, and helped her study, et cetera, et cetera. But what I found is that actually party authorities didn't really like too many of those stories because they suggested, you know, that they would have to be kind of in conflict with local communities all the time. And they preferred stories about where maybe there was a little bit of conflict, but, conflict, but then it was resolved uh, and, and actually, uh, you know, people were together. So um, there was one other woman we interviewed who, um, uh, you know, uh, ended up working up, uh, working alongside her father, right? And this was also the kind of thing that they really liked, right? That whole families were joining together. And so in this one, in this woman's case, you know, there was some conflict, but on the whole, this was a this was a kind of happy story. But we know we know from other kind of criticism development that appear in the seventies and eighties that a lot of programs that targeted women and tried to get them into the industrial labor force. Um, then led these women to rely on uh, more marginalized women, younger siblings, et cetera, to take care of children, right? The expectations about household labor didn't disappear with their entry into the industrialized labor force. And so what it would do is then create another group of people who uh, remained in the home or who were marginalized in some other way. And so, you know, uh, we asked her like, who then took care of the kids? And she said, well, it was my younger sisters. Uh, they helped me take care of my of my family. So on the one hand, this confirms that kind of critique. But then it turns out uh, most of these younger sisters actually did follow her uh, footsteps. Um, and one or two of them were actually still working on the dam uh, when we were conducting interviews. And this was in 2013. Right. So it kind of uh, on the one hand, you know, uh, supported uh, that kind of earlier finding, but it also showed ways in which um, that kind of pattern could be uh, subverted. And so these are the kind of things that you could get out of uh, doing this, this kind of uh, oral history, which you couldn't get out of, um, you couldn't get out of archival certain source, certainly, and, and you couldn't really even get out of memoirs always, because here we were interviewing people who, for the most part, didn't write memoirs, right? So when I interviewed urban intellectuals, a lot of times these were people who'd written memoirs or been written about in other people's memoirs. Very interesting in its own way, right? But here the point was people who did not uh, break memoirs. Now, what I wanted to say is that um, just the fact that, of course, people didn't, um, you know, you, you're 
grad students, I'm sure you're well steeped in post-colonial theory and questions about uh, subaltern voices, right? Just because somebody uh, didn't write a memoir um, doesn't mean that their story has never been uh, recorded, right? And that's particularly true in the Soviet Union and particularly when you're dealing with a project that was such an important showpiece uh, for Soviet propaganda. Right? And so one of the things that we had to um, be aware of, and I try to be aware of my book, is actually the way that the Soviet Union was <clears throat> shaping the narratives, right? Shaping the way people learn to talk about themselves, right? It can be a strategic choice. It can be something you internalized, but also the way that, um, you know, people got used to uh, speaking to journalists, sometimes briefly, um, sometimes for more extended periods, still had an effect, you know, some 30 years maybe after uh, yeah, um, journalists had stopped coming there on a regular basis. In fact, you know, when I would take, when I would um, hop into a shared car in Dushanbe to go up to Marek, you know, sometimes people would think that I was a kind of foreign engineer who was coming to help work on the dam, but a lot of times people assumed uh, that I was a journalist. And especially when I said I'm going there to talk to people, people said, oh, okay, you know, here's another journalist. Okay, we haven't seen one for a while, but I guess now they're coming back. Now, there's a brilliant movie um, from 1978, which is set at this particular construction site, and it's called Happiness is Nearby, Shastiriadam. Um, and I want to show you just a short clip of it because it uh, illustrates the kind of um, issue that I'm, that I'm discussing here. Um, my um, slightly awkward subtitles. Uh, I won't give you the whole plot, but basically it's, it centers around this gentleman here who is a kind of master builder. I think he's partially inspired by the, um, he's, a, he's a brigade leader. Um, he's, insp he's inspired, I think, partially by the gentleman I showed you earlier, uh, though his family story is quite different. But here's a scene where a journalist comes to take, a photo photographer from a kind of central newspaper comes to take his picture. So have a look. <laughs> Right, so, you know, I love this idea that, of course, he is a genuine uh, kind of hero. Uh, and and uh, and you know this is the way he dresses right. Part a lot of the movie is about how actually he's also you know, very local and and 
um, you know, has this very close relationship with his father, who's a shepherd, um, and at the same time is very modern and very Soviet. But of course, the journalist uh, wants to present a very particular kind of image, right? He has a set image of what that hero should look like, and he transforms him into one for the purposes of this picture. Now, a more direct uh, example from my research um, comes with uh, this gentleman. He's a World War II veteran. Um, I write about him in the book. Um, who in his story, I mean, he is also his hero, socialist labor and, and so on. And, and actually his, his work or one of the rewards for, for his achievements is he gets to go to Moscow at one point and he says he buys an Arabic grammar or an Arabic dictionary and learns Arabic. And he's actually quite a devout, uh, he's quite a devout Muslim. Uh, and he talks about how he doesn't see that as a contradiction. He was, you know, very loyal to the Soviet Union and, and, and to socialism and at the same time. Muslim and so on and so forth. And then at the end, we asked to uh, take a picture and we, and he said, of course. Um, but as soon as we started taking pictures, his great grandchildren uh, ran inside and came back with this, right? So again, this expectation was already there. Aha, uh -huh, you know, the journalists, the people who take down stories are here. So this is how, um, this is how we present uh, ourselves, All right? So, you know, this is something that when I, um, when I was doing interviews for my first project and I was going to go and talk to politicians, you know, everybody warned me, right, be careful because they just, they just turn on the record player, right? They'll just tell you the story uh, that they're used to telling people that they want you to know. Um, and again, you know, the division between elites and non-elites, obviously, uh, it's very ambiguous, but nevertheless, everybody, uh, you, you encounter this problem everywhere. And of course, your own positionality, how people who you are going to the situation, how people perceive you um, also has uh, an effect. Two other things I wanted to, or three other things I actually wanted to mention briefly, right? I said that I focus in this, um, in this book on the post-Stalin period. Um, and that's a conscious choice in part, part because um, I'm just curious, you know, once the kind of use of mass violence is out of the way, how does the system work, right? So what are, what are the ways that the, um, the state kind of uh, tries to mobilize people, what kind of accommodations take place, what kind of negotiations takes place, and so on. At the same time, um, you know, in, let's say, uh, 1960, right, when, if just take one example, when the Newark Dam, work on the Newark Dam starts, Stalinism's not that old, right? It's only seven years old. Um, or, sorry, it's only, Stalin's only been dead for seven years, and the post-Stalin era is only seven years old. Um, and for many of these people, um, the memory of the war is still quite fresh. Uh, the memory of forced resettlements might still be uh, very fresh. Um, and uh, the memories of mass repression as well, right? This is people, when, this is a period actually when people start learning the truth about some of these uh, repressions. Um, and what I want to say is that, that again, you have to keep that in mind as you think about, you know, are people resisting, not resisting, uh, and so on, right? So, um, and that's something that also comes out in some of these uh, oral histories when people talk about, okay, well, here's what happened to my family in the 30s, and then here's what I was doing in the 50s and 60s, right? Um, which is not to say that it determines everything, right? But that's that's something that's that's kind of there. <clears throat> um, kind of on the other side of things is, is you know, the issue of uh, nostalgia, right? And I think it's a particularly strong one in Tajikistan because what follows the Soviet Union is civil war, 
right? And it's not to say that everybody in Tajikistan thinks the Soviet Union is wonderful. People have very different, in some cases nuanced, some think this is not very nuanced opinions about the Soviet Union. Um, but of course, you, you always have to keep in mind, you know, um, what followed, right? And especially if you're talking to a generation that, that spent significant part of its life in the Soviet Union. And then the silences, and the silences can be very different. There are silences that, you know, where people don't want to talk about or don't seem to want to talk about during interviews. Um, but archival sciences are interesting uh, as well. Uh, and they're not just kind of missing information. One of the most interesting documents I found uh, was when I was looking uh, at peasant resettlement after Stalinism and the kind of strategies that uh, peasants who didn't want to be resettled, which was quite a lot of them, most of them probably, um, adopted. Um, and you see that there are files with these inspection reports of, of um, you know, officials going out and, and trying to track down peasants who didn't arrive at their destination site. And then at one point they just create a blank form. Right? And that blank form for me spoke volumes, right? Because you only create a bureaucratic blank form when you're dealing with a phenomenon that's become really widespread. Right? So on the one hand, the kind of more detailed stories about what people were doing and, and, and where they disappeared to uh, kind of then start to fall away. But what you do is you get um, kind of evidence of the scale of the problem um, because of the kind of bureaucratic response to it. And you get that in the form of a uh, blank form that needs to be uh, filled in. Anyway, I'm happy to talk about any of these things. Uh, before I stop, I just want to make sure I plug the Central Asian Memoirs Project, uh, which is hosted by the website Russian Perspectives on Islam. Uh, Isaac Scarborough uh, and I decided to put together all the memoirs we collected in our separate research. Uh, we digitized it, we put it online, it's kind of curated uh, presentation. We've also translated some bits of those memoirs uh, for people to use in teaching. I used it in teaching um, this past fall. Um, and we're building on that now. We're working with a young Kazakh scholar who's got a bibliography of 240 um, memoirs in Kazakh and Russian, uh, which we'll hopefully uh, be adding over the summer. And I want to encourage you to make use of that site. Uh, and uh, if you want to contribute either by translating or because you find memoirs yourself when you're doing your research, um, that would be great. So thank you for listening and uh, I'll be very happy to take some questions.